Welcome everybody to the spring licensee call for 2014. We're doing this a bit differently. Normally these are actually conference calls, but because we only had a couple of hundred people signing in and uh, there were limits on time, whereas our podcasts are not limit on t- limited on time, uh, we can do them asynchronously. We thought it would be good to record this one and make it available. It also makes it easier for you to listen at a time when you know you'll be able to read the questions. Uh, it doesn't make much sense for us to read all of the questions. Otherwise, this becomes probably twice as long. Um, but we're interested in your feedback. This is the first time we've done this. We want to get these answers out to you. Um, and at the same time, if you feel like us reading the questions would be helpful, we would certainly consider that. Uh, if you have comments about it, like or dislike this new format, um, send us an email to service at manager-tools.com. That email will get to me. Uh, it'd be helpful if you titled it licensee call feedback or comments. That'd be really helpful to me. And we're going to do something different this time. Uh, we're going to have three voices on this call. I'm going to answer a series of questions. Then Wendy's going to answer some questions. And then Danny's going to answer some questions. And I'm going to finish it out with the last of the questions. I have the majority of them, but gradually over time, you'll hear more from Wendy and Danny, particularly from Wendy if there are career tools questions. Here we go. Question number one is, what is my reaction to a Gary Hamill article? Gary Hamill is a famous management consultant uh, who wrote an article about the company Morningstar, whom uh, is quite uh, publicized lately, and it's called Fire All the Managers. The article actually came out a couple of years ago, but people have been mentioning it. This is a periodic thing that happens, folks, uh, that companies think about getting rid of managers and they, quote, hire better people, unquote, and, quote, eliminate hierarchy, unquote, and they think it's a good idea because management has such a bad name. Well, my response to Gary Hamill's article is it's ludicrous. It's stupid. And Gary Hamill is really smart and smarter than me, but he's really wrong on this one. To me, these kind of articles are just shameless grandstanding. And you know what, guys? Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I think when something interesting happens in management, like a company getting rid of all their managers, managerial consultants say, wow, I ought to cover that. I ought to talk about that. It's interesting. And there are a number of management consultants who are creative and different and so on. And we know that we're quite boring, but effective. Gary Hamill is one of them. Tom Peters is another one. Uh, He's kind of gotten wacky at times, but they're really, really smart, and it pays to know what they're talking about. But generally, when I read articles like this, I think this is an easy magazine article for somebody to write. It gives the author a lot of buzz, and my general feeling is, don't worry, at this company, Morningstar, those managers will be back. That's my feeling. Another example of something that's pretty unusual in the world of management is Zappos, who many of you know is a great customer service company, has a great story, was bought by Amazon a couple of years ago, got enamored of a guy named Ken Wilber's concepts of management, which he believes in something called Holons, H-O-L-O-N-S. Ken Wilber has written a book called A Theory of Everything, which is pretty complex and yet uh, in my opinion, fairly fantastical. I think Ken Wilber's another really, really smart guy. And I don't think Zappos' experiment with hold-ons and the elimination of management 
will work. And generally speaking, I don't mean to suggest that the elimination of managers is inherently bad. If you want to try it, knock yourself out. I don't think it'll work, and I'll explain why in a minute. But I think companies periodically go back and forth on reorganization. There's a great quote by Babilius Sirius, Sirius, I think, which is, I'm told, apocryphal about how uh, we periodically reorganize, and reorganizations give you the appearance of changing things when, in fact, all they do is create indecision and confusion and dissent and so on. Now, look, I understand that people in the management world want to, you know, that they need, they feel the need to consider new ideas, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think we ought to pay attention to what happens and things like this. I don't believe it'll work, but I'll be the first one to call myself wrong if, in fact, uh, management changes and we get rid of management. That said, for now, I think it's total crap. <laughs> Here's what the smartest man I've ever read. His name is Edward O. Wilson. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote a book about ants that's absolutely fabulous. Here's what he wrote. He's the smartest sociologist I've ever read. Uh, and here's what he said. For a Wall Street Journal Millennium Edition in 2000 about mankind, they asked him, is it safe to say that human nature has not changed greatly in the last 1,000 years? And Wilson says, I think it's safe to say that human nature hasn't changed in the last 100,000 years, maybe further back than that. So the journal says, so there's no reason to believe to think that it will change a great deal in the next 1,000 years. And Wilson says, no reason to believe it whatsoever. Now, this is a smart guy. This is the Peter Drucker of sociology, okay? The journal goes on and says, is it silly to think we can eliminate reporting and power structures within firms? And Wilson says, oh, yes. <laughs> and look, Google tried to eliminate managers several years ago. The whole point of their Project Oxygen, if you don't know what Project Oxygen is, you need to read the New York Times article about it or the Harvard Business Review article about it. And the Harvard Business Review article came out in the last year or so, whereas the New York Times published this a couple of years ago, um, Google tried this. They tried to get rid of managers because they questioned whether or not a tech company really needed managers because tech people hate managers because they want to do their own thing to some degree. And we respect that. And Google tried it. They tried getting away from managers and it failed miserably. And they ended up where we are, which is you're going to have to have managers. And oh, by the way, they teach basically one-on-one -on feedback and coaching and relationships and so on. So, I didn't care for fire all the managers. I don't think he's right, and I don't think it matters as long as you have a manager. Uh, you And if you have people reporting to you, you have to do it the right way, and we think our way is right. Okay, next question. How do you respond to a situation where your work is used and the glory is taken from you by someone more senior? Basically, this person's a mid-level manager. He's been working with a member of the executive team. He's been delivering real well, but he's recently been told he can be involved, but the company says, we don't see you taking this forward long-term. We need someone with these capabilities. And, you know, the company doesn't realize this person has this. And the guy says, I'm very passionate about the area. It feels like my baby. I feel I could do it long-term and do it well. Do I just have to suck it up and smile? And my answer first is to some degree, yes. But, in my opinion, this person is making this situation into a dilemma, which means one of two choices. That's the definition of a dilemma. Uh, and it's not. It's really a two-pronged strategy you need to consider, in my opinion. First, don't get mouthy to this exec. Don't whine and don't pout. Now, look, guys, I know that the person who asked this is probably going, oh, no, I was never going to do that. And I'll say, okay, I believe you. 
And here's what my experience has shown me. People ask me in, in a similar vein, they ask me about how they can do better in interviewing or they describe something interviewing. And I maybe ask them a question. They say, oh, I would say this. And then they tell me something that you would never say in an interview. And then I say, dude, you can't say that. It's impossible. You, you, that, that will kill you. And he says, oh, I would never say that in an interview. And I tell people, in my experience, if you would say it to me talking about the interview, you'll say it in an interview. Maybe you disagree. It's fine. I've coached thousands of people on interviews, and I've seen it happen over and over again. So it's the way I see the world relative to interviews. Um, same thing here. There's a tone in this question that suggests that you're likely that you'll whine or pout. And I don't mean whining or pouting like a five-year-old. I mean professionally whining or pouting or active plaintively or acting as if they took your ball and you know, or they, they took what you wanted and you're going to take your ball and go home. So don't whine, don't pout, stay frosty, okay? Second, keep delivering, okay? Until they take it away from you, do what you need to do. Stay in the weeds, get things done. And what I wrote in my notes here is probably that should be my first point is keep delivering. But in the tone of this note suggests you're ticked off. So I thought I'd have you put the safety on before I told you to put down your weapon. The third thing you need to do is make a case to this guy. Yeah, you've been told you're not the guy. But see, you say you have skills he's not aware of. Pitch them on the skills. Pitch your skills to him. Make a business case. Now, I suspect that they'll be surprised, but they won't show it. And I suspect they'll stand by their decision and give you some blah, blah, blah about why. Yeah, that's good. And we didn't know that. And that, But we've already made the decision and we're going forward. Yeah, okay. And that happens. Executives often feel once they make a decision, they need to protect it at all costs. But that doesn't obviate the need for you to make a case. I found in a lot of cases, making a case in a situation like this is helpful for you to lay down any frustrations you might have. Fourth, in conjunction with making a case, Activate your internal network here. Ask your boss to reach out to some of his or her more senior contacts. You reach out to some more senior folks you know. Part of that is determine, if you can, why you're suddenly not the guy. And it may be that you don't see something. And it's possible you don't see it, and they're going to lump it in with something else that requires a relationship with another business unit that you have no relationships with. And that will help you when you're making your pitch. Don't do this after. Remember I said fourth in conjunction with making your case. So as you're doing that, find out what's going on strategically as best you can because you may want to change this, some subtle things in your pitch to make it more obvious that you're the guy. The analogy you make about the pitch is dramatic, but it's rarely true that it's the way you say. And it's dangerous if it's not true. Don't carry that frustration around unless you can, you know, unless you can prove it, some of the things you said uh, with audio or videotape from the guy, you know, I think the quote was, I'm pretty annoyed. It feels like my role isn't valued anymore. And someone's taking the opportunity just to tap the ball into the net after I ran the full length of the pitch. Yeah, you know, you're going to have to let that go. And sometimes it sucks to not have as much power as you want. You can win your case without telling people that this guy is doing something cheap or tawdry. But you will lose tragically if you use something like that, hint at something like that, that would be pouting or whining, uh, if you're not delicate in how you do it. 
And that's a pretty delicate, pretty subtle political play there. And look, for heaven's sake, throw me a bone. Let me know what happens here. Everybody asks me my, my, my input, and then they never follow up and say, here's what happened. And I'm okay with you saying, yeah, I wouldn't have done what you recommended. That's okay. But we do make recommendations, and I stand by. Okay. Question three. By the way, this is my least favorite question. I'm, I'm glad it was written, and I'm happy to answer it. But it's my least favorite question because I'm going to read this one to you all. We ask everyone to put their question in the form of a question up front so I can know what the question is before I read the story. So this question is, is there a better solution to this problem that you could recommend? So in other words, they put a question up front, but then they don't tell me what the actual question is or what the problem is. So I'm going to read you the question, actually, the notes. Uh, it says, I loved visual note-taking and have begun to implement it. My problem is 100% of my team is offshore and I work from my home office. Writing on walls slash whiteboards just isn't legible from a webcam we found. And we're compromised by having somebody type on a screen share. And this person says, and the tip of the hat, thank you for saying this. Yes, typing, I know, it's evil. Actually, typing's not evil. I love to type. I hated typing class. My mother sent me to summer school in seventh grade for it. But man, was it useful. I see people still typing with two fingers, and I wonder how inefficient they could possibly wish <laughs> to be. So that said, enough about the logistics. Let's talk about the question itself. I think it's a great question. And I think um, this is an example of the bell curve where we say our guidance is for 90% of the people 90% of the time. That said, more and more teams are becoming virtual, which is dumb. More and more teams are becoming international, which is dumb. And the reason why, of course, is because people, companies assume that managers are going to be good at managing people virtually and managing people internationally. And managers are not because, hell, managers can't even manage people in their own neighborhood. But we've been vexed with a similar problem here. And frankly, we've tried, Wendy and I and Mike and I and Danny and I have tried similar technological solutions. They're close, but really not yet. You know, you, you have an iPad and you write on it and everybody screen shares the iPad. But it's just not, it's not solid. So we feel your pain and we trust you to do what you think is best. And so I don't necessarily have a better solution. I will say this, there's a movie I really like filmed in a place I really love. It's, it's called Quigley Down Under. Uh, Tom Selleck plays a guy named Quigley. And in fact, Tom Selleck in Hawaii used to drive my car where he and I used to live. Um, and he plays an American cowboy rifle marksman in Australia, in the outback. And the villain is played by the exquisite Alan Rickman, uh, who is Snape. If you don't know Alan Rickman, he's Snape in Harry Potter. Quigley Selleck is captured toward the end of the movie by Rickman, and Rickman arranges for them to have a duel with pistols. During the course of the movie, you discover that Rickman is quite adept at pistols. He's a, he admires the American West in the 1800s and early 1900s. He's, you know, he's good at it, whereas despite Quigley's amazing gift with this rifle he has where he can shoot like half a mile, he has previously said in the movie he has no use for pistols. Well, Quigley, Tom Selleck, wins the duel handily. They stand there and they do the, you know, they both draw their weapons. And Rickman, in another famous dying scene, gives a quizzical look to Quigley. And Quigley says, says to him, I said I never had much use for one. Never said I didn't know how to use it. 
So my suggestion to you is, I never said I had much use for typing. I didn't say don't use it. So go ahead in this situation, use it. Go ahead, typing for now. And I think within the next year, we're going to have a solution that we can be able to share handwritten notes. I have to tell you, every time we go to my house at Pebble Beach and we write on the the uh, sliding glass doors, we hang we hang sticky paper, uh, flip chart paper, the sticky kind, uh, on the back of it so we have a white background. And we fill up an 8-foot by 12-foot section really quickly and take pictures and erase it. And it is fantastic. Uh, we do that when we're somewhere else as well. Um, we were in D.C. and we brainstormed with just stick, with flip charts on the wall at one of our offsites. Really recommend it. And I'm absolutely comfortable with the technology kept catching up with us. And when it does, we'll recommend it strongly. Okay. Question four. Uh, so this is the question of the year. What one thing or more could we HR directors do to improve your perception of us and our relationships with other leaders in the organization? And this person goes on, and I'm going to read this question too because it's short, but it's, but it's very trenchant. In listening to your podcast, it appears that you do not have a favorable opinion of many HR professionals. It feels as though you're continuing the Fast Company article, Why We Hate HR. Where have we gone wrong? Okay, so question of the year. First, I want to correct the record slightly. In the first years of our work in our podcast, and I know for many of you, you don't know when you're listening to a podcast when it came out. In the first years, I overstated my dislike for HR. I often said, I hate HR. That wasn't precisely true, but I said it because that's honestly how most managers feel about HR. Remember, this is manager tools. It's not organizational tools. We focus on the individual manager. We want to help him or her solve their problems. If every manager was highly effective in the world, there'd be a lot less need for HR. And frankly, there'd be a lot less friction and disorder and chaos and confusion in organizations. Having said that, nevertheless, I regret my thematic error. And I've always assumed that because people like our stuff and generally agree with our recommendations, I therefore don't hear from as many HR people saying, you're a jerk. But then again, of course, those people may just stop listening. My feeling now, and repeated regularly in more recent casts, as many of you know, is I don't hate HR. I hate bad HR. And sadly, there's a lot of bad HR. The reason HR is held in low esteem is that in far too many places, more places than not, it has forgotten to serve managers. HR fell prey to a classic organizational political power mistake. They believe that they're a staff agency and that they derive their power from being close to power. HR, folks, is a staff function. Okay, not a line function, a staff function. Let's say we counted the levels in an organization. We count the CEO as level one, his or her directs as level two, their directs as level three, and so on and so on. HR basically believes, or let me put it differently, since the, uh, I love the, the root of the word believes is act as if. HR acts as if that if they serve someone at exec level one, they are more powerful than everyone at level two and below. 
they believe if they serve or reporting to or attached to a general manager at level three, they have power, direct authoritarian power, order giving power, line level power over folks at level four and below. Guys, this idea is false and ignorant. And it's true, by the way, not just for HR. It's true for legal and finance and everybody else. It's wrongheaded. And it's arrogant when it's embodied by a 24-year-old generalist who couldn't manage his way out of a wet paper bag expecting a 25-year corporate vetting veteran running a plant worth $100 million to do what he says, not knowing that maybe he ought to suggest as actually say, you should do X. By the way, HR says should all the time, which is a bad thing. It is not your job to inspect managers or ensure they're doing things right. It's not your job. Managers are, I'm sorry to say this, guys, managers are more the company than you are. Your job is to serve, not dictate. You have no power. No staff organization does. You have influence. And when you choose role power, association with your boss power over influence, over relationship power. You destroy the relationship and then you come down a year later and want a favor? I don't think so, buddy. Okay? Stop threatening levels beneath you with the power of the person you serve. And look, I, I could talk for hours about this. And guys, I don't mean to pick on HR here. This is true of legal and finance. And guys, it's true of IT. Okay? It's true of internal corporate IT who has purview over hardware and software and implementation and servers and, and firewalls and all that stuff. Okay? So look, let me get to recommendations. Stop promulgating policies that you think up that you think will help the company. You're like the U.S. government where every problem needs a new law. Somebody in HR ought to make a name for themselves by going through and finding all the stuff that the company asked managers to do, put it in a list and go, holy Toledo, all they would do is fill out forms for us. If you don't know it and you're in HR, Wendy and I like a blog called Evil HR Lady because basically I think, I don't know her background, but I'm pretty sure that she gets it that HR's job is to make line managers more effective. Number two, you serve the managers who run the company. You don't run the company. Your job is not the people of the company. That's the manager's job. Your job is to help the managers and executives. Okay? So, you serve the managers who run the company. Go talk to those managers. Build relationships with them. Give them your cell number. Again, there are three types of power or influence in organizations, role power, expertise power, relationship power. We certainly expect staff people to have more expertise than us. We expect HR people to be smart about things like hiring policies and hiring laws and uh, performance management systems and those kinds of things, organizational systems that managers have to interact with. Expertise we want you to have. And I know all of you try very hard to do that, and you're in a world that changes rapidly, and we respect that, okay? But of the other two, too many of you choose role power of your boss rather than relationship power with the people you're serving. Stop claiming the one you don't have, role power, and proffer the one you do, which is relationships, which is also the one you can build on. Tell people you serve them. 
tell those managers you serve them. Stop shaking your finger or invoking the rules or telling them why what they're doing is wrong. I got to tell you, everybody's always telling managers what they're doing wrong. And no offense, we just stop listening at some point. Okay? All right. There's a great, one of my favorite stories, I always tell it wrong, is if a, I want to say, I know it's in, in, in the Balkans, a earthquake hit and a, a, a schoolhouse was demolished and uh, the, the authorities put up tape around it and uh, one man said my son's in there and he went underneath the tape and he said i'm gonna go i told my son i would always be there for him he's in this school he's down in there i'm gonna try to get him out and everybody's standing on the side of the tape going you can't do that you can't do that you might do something bad you might do something bad and the man kept digging and the man kept in finally at one point he turned to everybody else and says, are you going to help me or not? Right? The end of the story is he got his son out. And when he actually found his son way down in an air pocket, way down at the bottom, he said, come on, son, I'll get you out. And he says, no, no, there's some other kids down here. I, I've been telling them, don't worry, my dad will come get me. And you get them out first because I know you'll still get me out. Now, you know, you stand there and you say, this manager's busting his tail and he's scared to death and he doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he doesn't know what, he, what he's doing any more than you do. But why not help? I know I've said it before, guys, but what will we put on earth to do if not to help one another through? You telling some manager who reports to somebody you serve that you have the power to invoke your boss's power, you just destroyed a relationship and you're going to get compliance energy from that manager. Oh, he'll probably do what you tell him to do and he'll do it because he knows your boss matters to him or her. But boy, you won't get much more than he'll do what he needs to do. And he'll make a note in his ledger of accounts that says that HR person, when it comes right down to it, all about taking care of herself and her boss and not about me. In the Army, there's something called the Inspector General. And there's a joke. An Inspector General comes into your organization, and they have to do routine checks. But periodically, they're there because there's been a claim or a, an accusation or whatever. And if you don't know the military, the equivalent in TV shows you're used to is the Internal Affairs Department of Police Departments. And uh, the joke is, hi, we're Inspector General. We're here to help. Well, that's how managers feel about people from staff coming down to higher levels say, hey, we're here to help. You're not here to help. Okay, you're here to tell me what to do. Okay, so tell them you serve them. Demote yourself. Bring your expertise and your relationship, not your power. Offer to help. Be a source of help, not of power. Next, ask questions. What scares the managers? What don't they know? I got to tell you, I've been called by HR for 25 years. We need X, we need this, we need that. And over and over again, the theme of that is this is what HR thinks. I got to tell you, folks, if you're 30 in HR, you're no smarter than a 30-year-old line manager, even if you went to some special HR school, because line managers are actually trying to get stuff done. And I know this sounds terrible, and I know you're going to hate me for it, but you're a cost. You're not a benefit to the organization. All the results of the organization happen outside of the organization. Everything that happens internally are costs. That's true for everybody. If a manager serves a customer, they're important. And relatively speaking, no offense, it's true of legal and finance and IT too. You're not. Okay? So ask questions about them. What don't they know? HR's been calling me for years and saying, we need X. What they want is come train our managers. Great. Okay. 
But what we end up training the managers on is not what they want, it's what the managers can do. And they think that there's some magical alchemy that turns managerial behavior change into organizational output. The problem is they made up what they were looking for and they never talked to the managers. I don't think I've ever heard an HR person said, I went down, I really got to know my managers and you know, they really need some basic stuff. And by the way, a manager won't tell you that unless she really trusts you. Now, HR people will, uh, some HR people will immediately call me and say, Mark, wait, I told you that a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. I told you our managers need basic management training. Yeah, I know. But it was because a bunch of senior people sat around and said, our new managers, our early managers, they can't manage. We think we need X. Go talk to the frontline managers. Find out what they want. And, and by the way, I'm not, I mean, there are higher level problems to solve too. Talk to those managers too. Talk about how they need political help. Uh, yeah, I mean, go ask questions. What don't they know? Find out what they need help from you with and then do that. Help those managers get done what they want. And because of your relationship, allow them to do it and not get lawyers involved. And by the way, folks, here's a dirty secret for you. We do have HR people listening and they know my position. And I have never received that I'm aware of a single HR question from anyone in HR ever, unless it's about them and their team. I got to tell you something. Nobody's that good that they don't ask this question. And this, that's why this is the question of the year. It'll be the question of the year probably for next year too. And to whoever the question is, questioner is, and I, and guys, I don't know who the questioners are. Every once in a while I can tell I've talked to somebody about a problem and they ended up writing in for it uh, to get an answer. But if you're the questioner, thank you. Send me an email. I'd like to discuss this further because if I can help you, I know I'll be helping a lot of managers in your company. Question five is, how would you manage your career if you had had five directors in the last 12 months and eight in the last 24 months? Basically, this person's a senior manager, team of developers at a remote office, the director, his boss, or at his home office, so he's distant from his boss. He's always starting over, proving himself with his team. The directors implement changes that are disruptive. He was doing well. He says, I'm prepping the new directors. It worked well with a few of them. We're a big company. We're bigger than a billion dollars. I've been here 14 years. And I have a 12-month non-compete if I leave. So, first of all, great question. It was well asked. Thank you very much for the detail, giving me some sense of context. It really, frankly, it sounds like you're doing everything you can, except maybe get promoted to the role that's messing with you, become a director. And it sounds like that would be the issue that there would be a log logistical location issue for you there. I suspect the reason, again, is because you don't want to move. And look, we generally don't have much ability to influence the positioning of people who are more senior to you. In fact, Wendy and I talked about this and she said, he's doing the right things. You're fairly powerless here. Now, this isn't exciting. Everybody wants us to solve the problems with their bosses and we're pretty boring about this and we're getting we're getting jaded, we're getting cynical in our answers because we agree on something else too, what we call the three-step, which is get your resume together, strengthen your internal network, and warm up your external network. The first and third of those are relatively straightforward. You know, we have lots of casts about that. Strengthening your internal network though is about either A, positioning yourself to be given the role or work for somebody else, 
B, learning more about other opportunities and opinions about what's going on with the role in the company. In other words, you are not being told a lot by your bosses, which probably benefits them. Folks, never forget, when there is chaos, someone is benefiting, okay? But knowing your boss's peers or your boss's boss's peers who may have a sense of things may be helpful to you, and that comes from your internal network, of course. And then creating allies that could help you if the situation turns into a knife fight. I suspect because you're distant, you have little political power. You have to use others' political power if it comes to that. So one of our recommendations, Wendy and I talk about this, double the number of trips you make to headquarters this year compared to last year. Or if you didn't go, at least go twice. What's more, I think we have a podcast about this. If we don't, we should. When you go to headquarters from, from the hinterlands, from one of the regional offices or district office or something like that, you always go early and you always stay late. If you have meetings all day on Wednesday, you fly in, you get in as early Tuesday as you possibly can. You have an afternoon meeting. You brief your boss and advance on things. You go to dinner with somebody. You go to drinks with somebody. You go to dinner with somebody else. You have breakfast with somebody else. You go to your meetings all day. Hopefully, you have time for lunch. And if you're in a series of all-day meetings with 200 other regional people, and there's a scheduled lunch where you're all just sitting there in a conference room or your free time, you could still schedule lunch. And you could leave five minutes before everybody else breaks for lunch, and you could come back five minutes late. It's not the end of the world. You've watched people come and go late to meetings all the time. And then as soon as the meeting's over, rather than getting on a plane, you could stay for dinner and then fly home the first thing in the morning. If you're only doing this three or four times a year, that's not a significant amount of business travel. And people would say that that job would literally be considered to have no business travel if you're making three-day trips once a quarter to your corporate headquarters. If you're only going twice a year or one time a year, that's not only non non-travel, that's negative travel almost. I know that's untrue, but it's accurate nonetheless. So regarding your external network, start looking for the kind of opportunities you'd be interested in and be able to work in without breaking your non-compete. Start saving. Think to yourself, I'm going to stay for the next two to four years. In that time, I'm going to do all the preparation I need to in order to have the right opportunity fall in my lap. And I'm going to have a ton of money to last for six or eight or nine months. We just did this. We just recommended this course of action with someone you well, and it took four years and when he found the right opportunity, it moved really fast, like within a month. That's because he spent the time in between setting himself up for success. I think too often people think, I work, I work, I work, I make a quick change, and then I work. No, actually, it's not plateau, chasm, plateau. It's more like gradually rising bluff. Um, the work is a plateau, but you're gradually increasing your prep for the transition. And the higher you make the bluff, the more tr preparation you do for your transition, the shorter the chasm is. And look, putting five people in the role above you in that short of a time and nobody reaching around and making sure you're okay worries me that they don't care as much about fixing whatever they think is wrong or they don't value whatever's happening from you and or the division you're in to give it someone good. I, I know that's hard to hear and I'm sorry for that. I'd say if you think things are fine, you're probably being too optimistic. So I would keep your powder dry simply because it doesn't matter how good you are. If the division goes badly and you're in the out in the regions and you're not well known and you can rest assured that none of those people who have been in that role for the last two years have been singing your praises to your boss's boss, then you're at risk and it's too bad. And this is why there is a manager tools because 
I don't like companies doing this to people who are good. Hope that helped. Folks, the next question, question six is, if I'm talking with a coworker in my office about a project and the phone rings, who takes priority? I chuckle at this one at first. Every once in a while, I get a question from somebody and I get a snarky reply suggesting, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that you walked your talk and I make sure I remember that person's name. So it does seem in some ways a fairly trivial or mundane question, but it actually has a bit of a twist when you, when you think about it. A systems approach to this question would suggest that the stronger your relationship with someone you're chatting to, the less likely you are to choose to interrupt the conversation. But actually, practice shows that it's just the opposite. You'd be hesitant to be interrupted by your phone in the first minute of meeting someone for the first time, but you'd expect a good friend or colleague to allow that to happen if you were talking to them face-to-face. I don't think there's any purely right answer here. There are urgent situations that justify breaking away and relationships that matter enough to ignore even significant interruptions. In other words, I don't think there's one simple rule that covers all the bases. Or put differently, if someone chose to do one or the other, I would probably understand that that was their fundamental principle and then they would have exceptions to the rule. I would normally say also, don't rely on other people's behaviors as a guide. It's been my experience that the average person, however well-meaning and intelligent, is unaware of their own habits and selfishness. I certainly know this is true of me. That said, I have found that when I, I try to note behaviors of people that I find annoying and I try to avoid that. There are a group of people that Wendy and I and Mike and Danny and Lynette and everybody else in the firm see periodically where, and guys, no offense, but they're often high C's, who they have rules and they immediately get annoyed when anyone doesn't do things their way. Annoyance generally, when someone is doing something that is generally a personal preference, is a bad response. And being annoyed and being intimidated are two of those emotions that um, I, I like to joke that there's no such thing as being intimidated. Being intimidating, people tell me that sometimes. Mark, you're intimidating. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm a nice guy. You feel intimidated. And the fact that you feel intimidated doesn't mean that I intimidated you. I'm just being me. And for whatever reason, you feel uncomfortable talking to me. Now, folks, I'm not suggesting that make, puts me in a good light. Same thing with annoyed. I did something, and then somebody else feels annoyed at what I did. And then what they say is, you're annoying me. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm doing X, and you're deciding to be annoyed. Now, I, I may not... It, maybe unaware that I'm doing something that's inappropriate or that annoys people, and I may not want to do it. On the other hand, let's not blame the other person for being annoying when all that really is true is they're doing something and we're feeling annoyed. So here's my recommended general approach. Don't take any interruptions and then make some exceptions to that rule. The other choice to me as a professional is less palatable. I'm not saying I'm right, uh, but insofar as we give professional guidance and manager tools and career tools, I'm willing to stand pretty firmly on this, even though I would not find somebody annoying if they did it differently. The other choice is every potential interruption is worthy, but I might choose to make an exception and focus on one, two, or three people or situations, and in those situations, ignore interruptions. Both of these choices create a certain amount of conflict. 
if the default is the interruption gets attention, that leads to a coarsening of society and civility, in my opinion. If everything is important or could be more important than what you're doing, which is, of course, always true, then, or let me put it differently. If everything could be more important than what you're doing, that's a truism. But if everything is important, then nothing is important. I also think if your rule is not to take interruptions, others gradually come to know that and they're respectful of it as a matter of reciprocity. That means interruptions are reduced and relationships are strengthened. Also, try to keep in the back of your mind that when you get interrupted, it's still your fault. You can ignore the interruption. Somebody else is attempting to interrupt you, but you allow the interruption. And then I think finally, the act of excusing oneself is really helpful. Taking an interruption as easily as looking at one's watch is even slightly coarsening. When you choose, and, and again, it's always a choice to allow an interruption, say, would you please excuse me for a moment, right? You literally say, would you excuse me for just one moment? People don't mind that as much. Whereas today, looking at one's phone simply because it rings is, is al almost seems to be a given. I think there are people who are listening who are younger who would say, well, that's just the way we are. And I would say, man, maybe you think I'm old. I'm over 50. And so therefore, I'm old-fashioned in my etiquette. Um, but it's really not etiquette. It's civility. It's respect for the other person. And the phone that's ringing is random. And if you have to look at it to find out, you're making a judgment. You're looking at the other person in front of you and saying, there may be somebody more important than you. Whereas when you were listening to them 10 seconds before, if you're really listening well, nobody thinks that you're thinking something else is more important than them. That's the definition of really good listening. And by the way, something else, don't say I have to, because you don't. You really don't. The next set of questions is going to be answered by Wendy. I'm going to turn it over to her. After Wendy's done, she's going to turn it over to Danny, and then I'll be back a little bit later in this call. Thanks, everybody. Hey everyone, so I've got the answers to seven, eight, and nine, and we're going to start with question seven. And the question asks, how do I respond to an interviewer about why he was laid off? And there's a lot of background, but that's essentially the question. And the short answer is, we have a cast for that. And it's called How to Answer Questions About Career History. There's part one and part two, and it includes things like being laid off, um, having time off due to illness, having time off due to looking after children or an elderly parent, all sorts of reasons that people have time off and are perfectly valid. The long answer is this person, whoever asked, is in a great position. They have been working on the relationships and saved money and whoever you are, well done, awesome. It's a sad fact, but it is a fact that companies find themselves in this position and the right decision is often to lay people off. It's the biggest cost and it's the easiest one to cut. And so people lay people off. That's that's one of the facts of life. And any sensible hiring manager will not hold being laid off against you in the same way that any sensible hiring manager won't, let, won't hold against you being off for to help your parents, to help your children because you are ill and so on. The problem is not every hiring manager is sensible. And we can't legislate against those, even though we'd like to. But then you wouldn't want to work for one of those unsensible hiring managers either. So if somebody rejects you because you were laid off, because you had a good reason, then just you didn't want to work there anyway. Move on. But you, question number seven, are in great position. So don't worry about it. 
Question number eight is, how should I choose between two job offers? And this question, we got it just as we were in the middle of the choosing a company to work for series, which is can be looked at as choosing a company to work for before you start looking, or it can be looked at as uh, comparing two job offers or more than that. So hopefully by now you've made your decision and we hope you made the right one. You're feeling good about it. There's now 10 nine, ten chapters in the choosing a company to work for. And there's lots of things that we consi- that we suggest you consider when you have multiple offers. Money, which is what most people think of first, is never our first consideration. More money does not make a miserable job better. Trust us. We've been there, tried that, doesn't work. Having a mentor and listening to their advice is a good call too. And this person has done that and I hope they gave you good advice and that you're in a good place now. And if you're in the same place as this questioner, check out the Choosing a Company to Work For series. Okay, question number nine. Could I please provide more detail on the elements of an effective cover letter? In particular, could we explain the purpose of closing the cover letter by stating when you'll follow up? So yes, the elements of an effective cover letter is one of the casts in the interview series. And we just released another 40 odd casts into the interview series. So at $150, it's now down to about $2 cast. So not having that is just ludicrous. The purpose of a cover letter is to connect your experience to the company's need. It says, you need this. I have this, therefore look at my resume to find out more about what I have that you need. It says, look at my resume and see that I'm right for the job. And it's kind of an introduction. Now we say that the last line should be that you're going to follow up. Or we recommend that the last line should be that you're going to follow up. And the person who asks this question says it can, he's concerned that it'll look like he's trying to control the hiring process. You're not trying to control the process. You're trying to help the hiring manager by making sure you follow up. It's more about being professional in following up than trying to force something. Half the time, the complaints we see about interviewing is that it takes forever. Hiring managers get distracted. They have a job to do, people to manage, and one person missing from their team. And any recruiter will tell you that getting hiring managers to review resumes give you slots for interviews, agree questions and make a decision is like pulling teeth. It's the hardest part of recruiting. And not because hiring managers are bad people, but because they're busy. So that's why you tell them that you're going to follow up so that they have a mental note of who you are and why, why you're calling when you call. And plus you're just demonstrating your professionalism by doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. And we can tell you 75% of people who are of candidates don't do that. They don't send what they're supposed to send when they're supposed to. They don't call when they're supposed to. They don't answer their phone when they say they're going to. They're late for calls. And you just jumped ahead of the queue and you're barely even started in the hiring process. And you're already number one. So what's wrong with that? And this is much harder to understand if you don't have a relationship with the hiring manager. If you just sent your resume into the black hole of an applicant tracking system and you don't know the hiring manager, then saying that you'll follow up when you don't know who that person is, I can understand why that would not make sense. But estimates, and they vary, but they're usually in the high 70% 
are that jobs are filled by people's networks or they're never advertised they're filled by the company referral scheme they're filled by a supplier that the company already knows all sorts of ways jobs get filled and they're not being advertised and if you know the hiring manager if you built your network and you know the people that you should know in that company then the whole following up thing makes a lot more sense so i hope that helps i think danny has the next set of questions so i shall hand over to her Thank you so much, Wendy. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Very excited about uh, recording some answers for the first time for me for our licensee recording conference call. So I'm going to answer a couple of questions. The first question I'm going to answer is regarding feedback. So this is question number 10 in the deck, if you have the deck in front of you. And the question is basically asking, how do I restart feedback after I've stopped? And then the listener goes on to list some more details. But basically, they're asking, I started doing feedback and then I stopped, got out of the habit. So the first thing I want to tell you is you're not alone. Most managers have been through something very similar to your experience. Feedback is probably the hardest uh, step for a lot of managers to take in the Trinity. One-on-ones, I think people understand and they get. Um, But feedback, that's going from one-on-ones to feedback is a hard step. And a lot of managers stumble there. So the first thing we want you to know is you are not alone. And we, we've all been there. We've all, we're all human. So first, I would just say, you know, go a little easy on yourself. Forgive yourself. It's okay. We all make mistakes. And start over. Be honest with your team. Be honest with your directs. Admit to them. Tell them, you know what? I know I started doing feedback with you guys. I dropped the ball. I didn't do a good job with it. I'm going to start over. And if you want to... I would certainly respect it if you said, you know, I'm just going to start with positive feedback to begin with, just to get back in the habit, and then add in negative feedback. I think that's totally reasonable. So again, just tell your team, you know, guys, I didn't do a good job of giving you guys a lot of feedback. I started using the model. I stopped. My bad. It wasn't smart. It was stupid of me. And I'm really sorry. And I want to start again. And, you know, if I were you, I would actually also take it to the next step and tell my directs, you know what, guys, help me with this. Remind me. Tell me how I'm doing. It will help me get better. And, of course, you can always use our poker chip recommendation for how to keep track of how much feedback you're giving. If you want to learn more about that, we talk about it in the cast. But basically, it's a way to help you measure and set a goal for yourself around giving feedback on a regular day-to-day basis. That's our answer. Okay, the next question is regarding 360s. This is a great question. We get this question a lot at conferences, particularly when we talk to folks about our guidance around don't give feedback to your boss. Often the next question is, well, what do I do if I'm asked to complete a 360? And that's what this questioner is asking. What's your guidance? How do I fill out a 360 on my boss? We do have a cast for this. Encourage you guys to listen to it. Essentially, what it says is we recommend don't be candid because, guys, look, the vast majority of bosses will know who said what, and they'll be reading the answers looking to figure out who said what. There's not an insignificant chance of retribution. If you don't have an ethical manager tools manager, if you have somebody who might use something like that against you, you've given them some ammunition. 
So we recommend don't be candid. The potential benefit to you as the direct in being candid, we believe, does not justify the risk that you're taking. The risk is greater than the the potential benefit. So now the question becomes, what to do if you're forced to write comments? If you're told you have to write comments? Look, if you're not forced to write comments, then we recommend don't write comments. But if you are, if you're told that you have to put comments in, you have to give some, um, some written input on the 360, then we recommend don't be positive and don't be negative. One of the examples that the questioner gave us was how to answer the question about what opportunities does your boss have to improve? So one way, for example, you could answer that question would be to say something like this. It would be hard for me to say never having served in my boss's role. What that basically says is I've thought about this and I'm not, I've never done this job. So for me to talk about how my boss can do better, it's probably not the best role for me. And it also clearly says that you and your boss talk about these things. What you're trying to communicate is we've talked about this and we communicate on a regular basis. Another question might be uh, around vision, right? Talking about your boss's vision. Again, the way you might answer that is we've talked about the vision for this company and where the company is going. I'm aware of the larger vision that we have in this company. My boss has shared that with me. If you're asked about your boss's interpersonal skills, uh, how they are building relationships through communication, you could say something like, we communicate every day on a regular basis. So again, our guidance is don't be positive, don't be negative. And if you don't have to give answers, comments, we recommend that you don't. That's our guidance. And again, if you want more details, you can listen to the podcast. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. And now I'm going to hand it back over to Mark. Welcome back, folks. I trust that Wendy and Danny did a great job taking care of you while I was taking my brief break. Uh, And now I'll pick up with question number 12. Mark, can you please share with us how you manage your own day and manage your environment to be effective? This person goes on to say, I've been a follower of Manager Tools since the Handshake podcast. This person has been impressed by my ability to get things done. Some of you would argue that, obviously. He says some of this is due to managing, is leveraging manager tools principles, and he's right. But also, it comes from little everyday things that I do to manage myself personally and my environment. And whatever detail is appropriate and beneficial, I'd like to learn about Mark's daily habits. What time does he get up? What time does he go to bed? Does he exercise? When does he do all his reading? Does he use an oversized desk, air on chair, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so here we go. Way too much detail here, probably, but. Anyway, before I start this answer, I would just want to start with an important caveat. I often say at conferences, we don't teach what Mark does. Mark does what we teach. Mike and Wendy and Danny and I aren't sharing what we do because it works for us. All of us individually work idiosyncratically to some degree. We use our own tools because they work and because it would be unethical not to. By say, when I mean our own tools, I mean manager tools and career tools. My answer to this question touches on some areas that we are unlikely to ever teach. So I do not consider this answer that follows to be a recommendation. I would consider this an admission of personal preference. 
That said, I manage my day based on my own personal priorities, which are family, content, which is either creating or delivering, leadership, and by that I mean of the firm, and then health. My family comes first. In 11 years of single fatherhood of Drake, I've missed 10 Thursdays with Drake, despite being on the road 200 days a year. I fly out on Monday, sometimes on Sunday if I don't have them the weekend before. I present Tuesday and Wednesday, and I'm home Thursday night for Drake, despite that enormous impact on billable days. Basically, I'm foregoing 40% of a work week in terms of my billable days. And this cast is coming out right after my last Thursdays and last official weekends with Drake. And for those of you who are divorced dads or moms, you know how difficult that can be. I miss him every day. At work, the three big things I'm responsible for are creating content, delivering content, and leading the team. If I'm presenting, I'm pretty bad at doing anything else. I would love to be one of those people that presents and can think about other things, but presenting well is hard, hard work. Uh, it's To me, it's an all-in bet. That said, I'm blessed with a constitution that is built for my life. I don't know whether other people feel this way. I assume it's true because our bodies are fairly malleable. I get up every morning around 6. Perhaps my greatest taken-for-granted gift in my life is the ability to sleep soundly anywhere, every night, the moment I lay my head down. I lay down, I'm asleep. By the way, doctors say that's bad. I don't care. I'll sleep when I'm dead. The alarm goes off, and I'm awake. And yet, this is weird, I haven't remembered any more than three or four dreams that I've had in the past 15 years. And again, I think that's bad, according to doctors. But speaking of doctors, I hadn't missed a day of work for sickness in 25 years. I have thrown up twice in the past 30 years. I've never had an upset stomach that I can recall. I eat anything, and usually too much of it, though I hate to eat. I just see it as fuel and kind of shovel it in. I actually only missed my first day of work due to the flu recently, uh, and it ticked me off because it blew my record. I go to bed by midnight usually, and again, I'm up later than, no later than six, sometimes even five. I don't like sleep. I don't like to eat. I don't like to sleep, and I don't like to drive. Sleep seems wasteful to me. Again, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I exercise less than I should lately. That's a function of having two houses and not having settled on a workout routine that works in my hotel room, and I've had a pretty heavy op-tempo lately. And I still, even after all these years, haven't gotten comfortable with a workout routine. My life has been in danger more on the road because I've been running near a busy uh, highway too often. And Mike now reminds me, you're too valuable. You can't be doing that. In the same way that I stopped playing morning basketball Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays at 5.30 in the morning with a bunch of guys my age because... Some young guys started playing, and all I have to do is blow out a knee to lose six weeks' worth of work and a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue for the firm. So running is hard for me, partially because I'm a big guy, but also safety concerns. Hotels are often in the wrong places for running. Workout rooms are often sketchy. 
I've gained weight lately, but I, I, I tried to change my schedule to address it. Should be fine within the next six months. I don't like working out. I've broken a lot of bones in my body, folks, 37, and my hands and feet hurt every morning. Typing actually hurts. But pain for me at least is fairly manageable. Um, so I work out in the late, late afternoon or evening. I really enjoy actually an hour on the elliptical machine reading. That said, I'm to the point now where I need to do more than the elliptical. Um, I need to do one of those CrossFit things or something. But CrossFit doesn't really work when you're on the road with the kind of schedule that I have. On Fridays and Saturdays when I'm out at Pebble, which actually is where I am now recording this, I may stay up quite late with my friends drinking wine or scotch and smoking cigars. I really like doing that. And I still wake up the next morning at a reasonable period of time, maybe not six. I don't know why that is that my brain wants me to wake up. I've never had a hangover in my life, but I don't really drink enough to ever warrant one usually. And don't ask me to give up my scotch or my wine or my cigars. If I die because of that, I'm okay. I should have died 500 times already in my life. I'm living on borrowed time and know it. I think my desk situation is a little unusual. I have a lovely big desk at my home here at Pebble. Uh, I have a folding table at my home in Fredericksburg. I write on planes a lot, so my briefcase, in a way, is like a desk to me, or maybe like a couple of desk drawers to go with my lap, which is my desk. I don't think one's physical desk matters all that much. My desk is its a Pottery Barn desk, and it's fairly big, I think, and I have three monitors on it, by the way, uh, but I really do think one's chair matters. I like my desk. It's the first desk I ever bought after I used folding tables. I don't know why people spend money on desks for people when folding tables work just fine. My uh, desk chair is an Aeron chair. I Ever since I sat in an Aeron chair, I'm never going to sit in another one. Love them. There are many parts of my life that people notice when they meet me. One is my Louis Vuitton luggage, which is astronomically expensive and surprisingly to most people, so fabulously utilitarian, I don't care whether people think I'm doing the wrong thing by carrying it. I actually use a small Louis Vuitton suitcase often as my briefcase. Folks, it's canvas, so it's lighter than leather, and it's waterproof, and it's indestructible. It wears like iron. So, my desk does get messy. I really like it when it's clean. But generally speaking, when I'm writing, a bomb could go off and I wouldn't notice. Nobody messes around on my desk. When I had a house cleaner for a while, my desk, I said, don't touch my desk. I actually have two Thunderbolt monitors slaved off of an iMac here in my house. Um, for a long time, I just had one Thunderbolt uh, hooked to my MacBook Air, but I like having my own desktop computer. And then nowadays, everything syncs up. It didn't used to be that way. I love my MacBook Air. It's an 11-inch one, so it doesn't come out of my bag through security. I have benefited enormously in all my peregrinations from the miniaturization of technology. Uh, I generally write in the morning, but I can write any time of the day. I prefer to write all at once, although I almost never do unless I'm on a hard deadline. A typical podcast takes me two to three hours. I, I definitely need to get faster at that. I like to work. I don't think of it as work. Um, so I work a lot. I think, compared to most people. And I don't have kids now. Well, I have kids. 
I just don't have to manage them or be home for them or take them to soccer. Again, because I like my work, it doesn't feel like work. I think I was put on earth, at least from a professional perspective, to teach managers how to manage. And there's a lot to do. I can assure you that one of my last thoughts on earth will be a regret that there was more yet to do and managers who didn't yet get it. The schedule of my day is I get up, I shower immediately, shower. I don't, I can't remember the last day I didn't start a day with a shower. My coffee is always ready first thing in the morning. I get a cup of coffee, some oatmeal or a bagel, although I admit lately on the road because I've been feeling like I need to reward myself, I've been having Eggs Benedict, which is really bad, but really good. I sit down at my desk by 7 or 7.30. I check the headlines of the Wall Street Journal. I process all my email in 15 to 30 minutes. Yes, I really do. I work on whatever is on my calendar or I write. I listen to classical music because there's no lyrics. And since I'm working with words, lyrics and music is dumb. There's a lot of survey. There's studies that show that. Don't do that. No music with lyrics. I'm alone a lot more than people realize. I like being alone. I've never felt lonely in my life. I just think about managing and managers and organizations and our company and our people. And I'm surrounded by need and I have some value and I try to express that value for you guys. When I write, and, and by the way, I don't consider email to be writing. Um, I minimize all the other windows on my screen. Every once in a while, I have to look up an old cast to get something accurate, but probably only one in every 10 casts. I have a pretty good memory for all the casts I've written. If you're wondering, I see our cast as something akin to stars in a mechanical universe and a big void above me. There are places with big holes and other spots that are darker or lighter. The goal is to leave everything lit up when I'm gone. At some point, I'm going to have to do my job differently or not travel. I started writing this answer before I made my announcement that starting next year, my travel is going to be significantly come back, cut back and I'm going to produce more content. I really am constantly working on the efficiency of cast preparation, but after nine years, I, I may, I know I need to do faster, but, I, but I'm sort of at a, a block at that point in terms of getting better, faster at it. Periodically, we do look at different ways of delivering material to you that would reduce the bottleneck of me, and we haven't cracked it yet. I get up and take breaks whenever I want, but probably only one or two each morning. When I'm here at home at Pebble Beach, I walk to the ocean sometime each morning, it's fresh air and it's humility. As Stephen King once says, the Pacific has no memory. When I get hungry, I eat something in the middle of the day. I don't care much what. Um, then I work all afternoon until I can't concentrate anymore. When the time between my breaks becomes 15 minutes, I'm done. Then I do email again and other small tasks that I've been putting off. I usually exhaust myself by 6 or 7 p.m. and I go work out. Then I come back and read until I can't concentrate on that. Twice a week I have to record. I do that at night usually and it's a fairly workmanlike 30 or 45 minutes. Sometimes when I'm recording with Mike, he and I chat for a long time afterwards. One thing I don't do nearly as often as y'all do is meetings. I have my one-on-ones. I have several directs and one peer, Mike, and I run. I ran for a long time our weekly staff meeting. I just recently delegated that to Wendy. I have lots of phone calls with clients, but really hardly any other meetings. And when we have meetings and I'm in, in them, I run them with brutal efficiency. I cut people off at the time and we move on. Again, if I lose my focus at my desk, I walk away. I read on the couch. I read in my Eames chair, which is the second greatest chair ever made. I do hate to drive about 90% of the time 
if I'm in a car, I'm being driven. Uh, I get driven to the airport. In Texas, that's an hour. Same guy every time. I get up three hours before my morning flight. I always pack the night before. It takes me an hour to get ready, then an hour in the car riding in the back seat. Some phone calls if it's not too early. Then the airport and usually reading there or more phone calls or emails. I can Again, I can write anywhere and I often do. I am a terrible driver. It seems wasteful to me. And so I gladly trade the money it costs to pay for a driver for the time I get. Now, I won't have a driver here at Pebble. I'll get a cab to the airport. It's only 15 minutes away. But I might hire a housekeeper to cook and clean to give me more time to work. Again, trading money for time. My salary, guys, is actually less than $100,000 a year. But I don't have that much to spend my money on. On planes, that means reading and writing. Reading and writing are a valuable part of my life. I read on a Kindle, Kindle software on my iPad. I don't miss physical books. And gosh, I love to read. I do do a lot of work on planes. I'm the only person, it seems, that works constantly on planes. I think it's unethical to be paid by a company to travel and have the company pay the airfare and for you to be on a plane in the middle of the workday and sleeping. But that appears to be the common function of most people in first class these days, to sleep or to play solitaire or to watch a TV show, one that includes blood or sex. Unbelievable. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Are you kidding me? I have worked on many flights, more than everyone else in the first class cabin combined. I fly to London, Sydney, Shanghai, and I stay awake the whole time working. Nobody is awake but me. I write thank you notes. I write. I read. Never seen a movie on a plane that I can recall. And the selection sucks anyway. I'm still pretty driven by deadlines. I have to write a cast every week. I don't think anyone understands what it means to have to write for a quarter of a million people every week, taking two to three to four hours to do it, and not missing that deadline ever. That flagpole feels very tall to me today, and I'm referring to the old joke that the higher you get on a flagpole, the more your butt's exposed. Presently, this will shock some of you, we have no backlog of written casts to record. Wendy and I have an agreement that by the Q4 of this year, I we will both be six weeks ahead, simply so that if we get in trouble, we'll have a backlog. I have lost hundreds of podcast ideas in the past years, uh, past months, and thousands over the years. I'm getting better. I finally have a mini notebook with me at all times. If I don't write an idea down, it's gone. As for recommendations, whatever you do, focus on one thing at a time. No multitasking ever. That's a big part of my productivity. I'm ruthless. There are 20 things I could be doing, but I'm always only doing one. I use OmniFocus to keep track of what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not a pure GTD guy. I use Microsoft Word and Outlook on my Mac. I don't use much other software. I use BusyCal. We use Gmail for our mail handling. Some great software called Fogbugs. Um, to handle incoming email requests. Somebody else triages that mail for me. I still write by hand my own notes when I'm writing notes about things. I recently tried the Evernote Jot Pen for a tablet. It's almost good, but it's not quite good enough. I have very expensive notebooks with my name on them that Mike happily helps pay for. If you come to a conference, I'll show you them. I take notes all the time, and then I usually transfer what I wrote down into OmniFocus. I probably should use Evernote, but I don't. And hopefully at this point, that surely is far too much. 
The greatest efficiency aids professionally are a passion for your work, deadlines, and a great assistant, and I have all three. Question 13, how important a factor is DISC in an interview setting? Our simple answer here, folks, is we don't use DISC to try to diversify a team. Choose somebody for the role based on their skills, and then ask your team to diversify itself in terms of how it communicates through typical behavioral adjustments, asking Ds to communicate differently with Ss and Is and Cs and so on. In this case, the manager asked about should he or should he not hire a certain type of person to balance out a team, and we just don't recommend that. DISC is good information to have, but it shouldn't be a gate, meaning a black-white, yes-no, um, on-off kind of decision. In this case, I would tell the manager who asked this, hire the high I. Don't try to hire a high C if, in fact, the role in your mind is much better suited to a high I. Question 14, how do I deal with egos and or rapid mood swings? This particular manager has a problem with what he would describe, I think, as younger people. And even though this manager does one-on-ones and feedback and coaching and delegation, he's wondering about how he feels or what he should do about, quote, lazy kids, unquote. It really is a, a solid question, in my opinion. There are really three things that I would recommend you focus on, uh, including managing your emotional state, and those are hiring and feedback, and then if you'll pardon the expression, ruthlessness. So first, hiring. And every time I tell people, be careful about your hiring, everyone says, well, you can't, I, Mark, I can't hire who I want. I can't afford who I want. The talent I want isn't available. And I would say, yeah, yeah, okay, I hear that. I hear that everywhere. I hear that at the highest levels, the lowest levels in every industry. I think if everybody offered a million dollars, anybody get who they wanted until the market caught up to you, and then suddenly a million dollars would be just what you're paying now. Look, I'm suggesting you at least reconsider your talent pool. The simplest way I know how to do that in short in the short term is ask your best folks, the people who are least whiny, if you'll pardon the expression, um, to drag their friends into your company. And also, when you're choosing, and I assume you are still choosing, start preferring kids who are more mature. Add that to the criteria that you evaluate. There are probably three or four questions you could ask that would give you a sense of maturity. With the kind of numbers you need in terms of hiring, forget about common sources and try to recruit anyone who gives you a glimmer of adulthood, which in my mind appears from holding down multiple jobs at the same time, those who are energetic when they're in a shift and it's late in the shift, and customer service folks with energy. Regarding feedback, I recommend you do more negative feedback sooner. And when you hear or see whininess, talk about that up front in terms of what you're looking for and what you're not looking for. Reinforce it during their culturation process and then be quick to address it. And I don't mean quick by being negative and harsh. I simply mean the moment you see a sign, give some negative feedback about it. And then every once in a while, if we're talking about young people, send a message that might not be feedback, such as, hey, I've had enough of your attitude. Shape up or find somewhere else to go. Um, we've often said at Manager Tools, there are two reasons to get rid of somebody. 
The first reason is because they fail to perform. That's Everybody knows that one. The second reason is because they tear down the team. And attitude is contagious, and it's very possible that one whiner on a team of three or four could affect one or two others fairly quickly. Don't be afraid to set the boundaries of professional behavior early. What you'll discover is you'll learn more quickly who or what behaviors cause you to realize a person's wrong, and you can add that into your hiring criteria up front. Also, try to remember, don't give feedback on people's ego or attitude, only on the behaviors you heard or saw. The words they said, how they said them, their facial expressions, their body language, their work product. Don't talk about their attitude when we're giving feedback. I mentioned the other example, that's not feedback. Okay, uh, You talk about somebody's attitude, they're going to argue. We have a recent cast, assume positive intent is perfect for this. And lastly, ruthlessness. Brief everyone on what you expect. When the biggest whiner does so publicly, fire them for cause because attitude is something you look for. Be nice about it, but don't, don't hold on to people who aren't meeting your criteria and make sure everybody knows about it. That will definitely help. On to question 15, folks. How can I work coaching into our annual goal process if I'm not far enough along in the Trinity rollout? This particular manager has been doing committed weekly one-on-ones since the beginning of the year. They've been very helpful and yet not ready to start doing coaching according to the Trinity rollout process, but would love to include these skills in that in terms of helping his people grow. And my answer here is go ahead, use the coaching model. Remember what we said before, the tools we have, one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, delegation, they all work a la carte, meaning you can work, use any of them at any time. But they also work much better when they're rolled out in the timeline of the Trinity. You can use the idea of the coaching model without following it to the letter. Just understand the risk you're taking. If you use the tool poorly, you're messing with their year and with their evaluation. And, of course, as most of us know, that risk is why no manager ever really does anything, especially in the government, about annual goals and then basically elides them, just skips over them, just ignores as if they ignores them as if they don't exist in people's annual review. There's a great start to the year. Yeah, we have development plan for you. We have things you're going to shoot for. But by the end of the year, the manager is complicit in the direct's failure to do it and then ends up saying, well, I can't give them a review for something that I should have been doing and didn't do. So there's a risk, and yet the tool does work, and so I would say, go ahead. Question 16, what are your recommendations for establishing a board of advisors whose purpose would be to assist in the transition of a profitable small business from sole proprietorship to a new structure of ownership, likely in the form of a board of directors? This particular person is a managing director of a raceway that's become profitable in the last three years. The owner is elderly and is thinking about his or her legacy, the sustainability of the mission, success of the organization after his departure. There's some interest in people buying the business outright, but a board of individuals appears to be the way we want to go. There's a stable foundation for future. There's one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, delegation. The board's purpose will be to ensure a smooth transition of ownership that doesn't upset the momentum. So my answer at first is well done. 
I don't think there's anything in my answer that you're going to hear that you wouldn't have figured out on your own. You're asking really what it boils down to a leadership tools or an executive tools or an organizational tool question. Um, and all of these things, interesting, I know, and you guys would love for me to do them and I just need to give up sleep completely in order to do so. But that's just not what we do precisely, at least partly because each organization has its own needs, its own missions. And managers don't have their own missions. They have a job. Okay. That said, I'd be really clear about three things, the second of which is probably least important, but it does have a catch. The first one is, what is your mission? And in this case, I don't mean spending days on a mission statement. I mean, do you and the owner truly have a guiding principle or two or three? It's times like the ones you're facing now, transition, uncertainty, and so on, where missions come in very handy. When you consider the existential issues of an organization, it helps to ask, does what we're doing serve the mission or not? Okay, so if your mission is not crystal clear to you, and I don't mean words, I don't mean a mission statement, that's one of the reasons I often poo-poo missions, because people spend days in a, in a wordsmithing session figuring out the mission uh, and argue the difference between should or would, or as lawyers would do, shall and will. So nevertheless, you may already have one, and if so, great. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised based on your question and what I know about the situation. But if you don't, spend some time thinking about it, okay? And the reason for that, of course, is if, in fact, you have a mission, who, if you choose the right person, if the person changes but the mission doesn't, the parameters under which that person is performing will be the same, which means performance will be similar. A lot of organizations, Henry Ford would say, the, the organization is the length and shadow of one man, but the moment you change the man, the organization has to change, which may or may not be a good thing. The next question is, what are your near-term future plans? What do you have planned to drive towards the mission in the next 5, 10, 15 years? When you bring a board into your discussions, into the organizational structure, it's the plans you've already laid down that are already in the works that the board cuts its teeth on. Okay? I've seen assumptions by general managers and owners that are completely legitimate become tugs of war with new boards of director. And often, oftentimes, it's ugly. Okay? Third, choose your people well. This is where I would spend a lot of my time. Different people disagree. Um, there's nothing wrong with a bunch of ethical, smart, experienced buddies of your owner. That helps him get out the door without a lot of rancor. Just make sure that his buddies are ethical, smart, and experienced. I don't think that the chairman role and the chief executive role need to be separated, but many people do. So there's a separate chair than the person who's actually running the organization. If nothing else, when you look at those above factors, ethical, smart, experience, and so on, shoot for people who get along with one another. And then put in place a good board meeting process for them. And you don't need to hear that from me. You can do that research on the internet. And one final thing, boards and executive tool kinds of things with an owner, a founder who's thinking of retiring are delicate, delicate matters. So 
I reserve the right to disavow this answer based on learning even a smidgen more about this situation. The moment you get into more executive tools things, I have discovered the chances that I'm going to be told to my, an answer I give, no, 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 you don't understand. I, the, the, what about this? I said, well, if I'd have known that, I'd have changed my answer. And executive life and clear missions and those kind of things make things very messy indeed. Sometimes people would say it's because the size of the personalities. I think it's because of the size of the risk. That if you have one or two or three people whose decisions over the course of a year or two could make or break an organization, and generally one manager in a large organization cannot make or break the organization, when you have one or two or three people who could make or break the organization, suddenly the assumptions and their performance uh, and the subtleties of certain situations can make an enormous difference. Having to answer questions like this is a bit like someone saying to a doctor, I have a headache, do I need surgery? Or the famous bit about the train station manager when he was asked whether this train will arrive on time. And he says, that depends. The guy says, on what? And the train manager says, that too depends. These things are delicate. That said, hope it helped. Number 17, how much do I tell the team of the thoughts I'm getting from my director on my team's performance? And should those thoughts come from my perspective or should I let them know it's coming from me? My guidance is tell them. Tell them as a group with the appropriate general tone and then visit with each one of them individually. Okay. In this particular case, if you read the, the slide, folks, there is some organizational risk here. So tell them generally and then sit down with each one of them and tell them specifically. And yeah, I'm suggesting a path that has some risk. The other side of this coin is, wouldn't you want to know, unless you're being specifically forbidden, there's an organizational effort here to do a layoff. And so there's often an assumption of complete confidentiality in those cases, or there is a close hold on information, or you're essentially asked to agree to what amounts to a non-disclosure situation. If you've not been told those things, then if it were you, wouldn't you want to know? And the answer, of course, is yes. And if they're your folks and they're going to be gone, they need time to be ready. And then the other thing I would like to say is too many people say that their job is done once they've said, okay, this is the situation. I think it's much closer to the fact of, of saying, try to work with these people to keep them, figure out what you need to do in order to help them stay. Okay, number 18. How does one handle going from a manager tools evangelist general manager to one that is very much less so? This is a classic question that couldn't have existed eight or nine years ago, where the manager says, my company recently lost our manager tools loving and living CEO through the elimination of his position due to corporate restructuring. And the newly minted general manager is much more hands off with regard to top performers. Okay, so how do I operate in an environment that seems much less managed and then help to ensure that the company or this particular location he's in doesn't evolve into a nakedly negative political place? Well, the first thing I'd say is welcome to the real world. Secondly, follow our guidance on relationships with your boss. There are several casts there, even though you can't manage him or her. Is he or she a reader or a listener who are his friends, who are his enemies, and so on? Next, reach out to your old boss. Stay in touch. Ask for his guidance about what he'd have you shooting for strategically. Ask him to help you through the transition. Three, make your own plans. Trust yourself. Pay attention to results. Adjust. And understand that you're at more risk than you used to be. 
And it's great to have almost no risk and a lot of authority, but it almost never lasts. So trust yourself and recognize that this is an early opportunity for you to flex your wings as someone who's not getting a lot of guidance, which most executives would say, I don't get a lot of guidance. I'll never forget, I talked to somebody recently and they said, oh, our new boss is horrible. We're having to do a restructure. And he said, hey, look, guys, why don't you get together, talk about what the structure should look like and let me know. And they all immediately rebelled and said, oh, I, he, he, only he would know. How can he ask us to do that? Well, he's not suggesting you make the decision and put in place the structure. He's saying, I want you to learn how to do this. I'll ultimately make the decision. But maybe the process of thinking about what ought to go into your decision will help you understand what decision I ultimately make. And you'll learn a little bit now at your level of the kind of things I have to deal with at my level. And I suspect if you think about it, if you're only one level down from your boss, the structure that you come up with isn't going to be orders of magnitude different than his or hers. That's good. But they were saying, no, he can't ask us to do that. Gosh, he's, he is totally hands off. No, actually, he's developing you by asking you to make a decision with the amount of information that he normally has. Then don't forget to continue reporting to your new boss. Too many people far too many people assume that with a hands-off boss, they don't have to report. So they don't report. One of their buddies goes ahead and reports and then says to them, yeah, you're probably right not to report because I report, but he never reads them. Yeah, no. Your reporting is to both protect you in the event of risk because something didn't go well, and also to beat your chest if, in fact, things are going well. You can't make your boss read those reports. You need the structure of regular reporting, and you need to maintain the kind of professionalism that says the organization needs to know this stuff whether my boss reads it or not. If your boss doesn't read it, it's his issue. Number 19, how can we communicate better with a remote vendor that has better technical knowledge of the task and actually sees and touches the work that they do, but gets defensive when we push for details of the work, the process, the costs, and so on? Now, folks, this is a tough question because the range of options is so wide and the timing of all those choices are very different. And there are assumptions I'm having to make here. So I'm going to start with a fundamental premise and then I'm going to have some recommendations. And for those of you following along at home, if you think you're going to understand this one without the more detailed part of the question that's on the slide, you really can't do that. You need to read the question in detail. So my fundamental premise here is that external relationships, relationship with vendors is an example. External relationships which we have to manage are like internal relationships without the controls that exist internally. And those controls exist in the form of power, political power, requirements to communicate, strategies and plans, so on. These controls that exist internally are invisible, but they make things much easier for us to get things done internally. The existence of relationships, internal and external, allows commerce with less friction. But external relationships, without the controls that occur naturally and largely invisibly inside an organization, have to be managed more assertively. Generally, that takes the form of clear, at least to one person, clear assignment of responsibility at the customer firm and detailed contractual language between the purchaser and the vendor. So in other words, one person needs to be in charge and there needs to be a contract that's written down to the nib. With that fundamental premise in mind, 
I have two pieces of guidance. First, you can't develop a relationship only around issues and problems. Relationships have to happen underneath those. And the second thing is you've got to shop your contracts. Uh, I'm sure you're going to tell me, oh, there's only one vendor in every location. And that may be true. And if so, okay, fine. But I never believe when people say only there's only one vendor. It may be true, but I generally disavow it until it's proven to me. So let's talk about the first thing. Relationships can't be developed only around issues and problems. Relationships are, however, developed around regular communications. And guys, I know that's boring, but it's still true. If you want to improve your relationship with these vendors, you have to move from inspections and following up and scheduling maintenance and disagreements and verification and questions and answers to regularly scheduled communications in addition to all that other normal communication stuff. You have to appoint someone to be responsible for it. In this case, I think it's Laura. And identify the person in each vendor's shop with whom you expect to have a relationship. Now, you may be thinking I'm recommending one-on-ones weekly, but I'm not necessarily. Maybe they're monthly. Maybe they're structured. Maybe they're not terribly structured, but somebody's responsible for the relationship. An analogy I'll use here is an external counsel for a corporation, a lawyer, their law firm. Now, the CEO and the managing partner, meaning the managing partner or the external vendor of the law firm, may not need to have a formal meeting schedule because they've known each other for years, and there are assumptions which are beyond contestation. There, some of the relationship is probably personal, and there are rules that both know. For instance, if there's something really serious, it won't be between two underlings. You'll hear from me, okay? Or if billing is going to surprise you, you're going to hear that in advance. Those are assumptions, okay? It's always better to have regular communication, but it is possible to have a relationship that can support commerce if there was previous significant interaction or trust building, okay? You, however, in this situation, have no such previous or personal or established relationships. So, you have to do the hard work of outreach on a regular basis. Maybe it's different periodicities based on the size of the contract, the throughput of the trucks, and so on, but it's certainly not email. And by the way, the vendor doesn't say, I prefer email. The vendor is saying, I don't want you to manage me. I just want your money. And I want to be responsible for the quality of your trucks in the field. Seriously, what idiot would agree to that relationship? I don't want to talk to you. I only want you to talk to me in a way that makes sense to me. And I want your money. And I want a control of your quality. Well, I'm sorry, buddy. You've got it backwards. You work for me. This is how we're going to communicate. And if you can't do that, if you don't want a robust relationship with me, I don't want one with you. And that means no money for you. The way you make this happen is making this part of, in this case, Laura's responsibilities and metrics. And ask her to report on it. Make that part of her metrics as well. First on the quantity of her communications, the frequency, and the time, the length, and so on. And then later on the quality as part of her quarterly reviews. At some point, if it's not already so, give her responsibility for announcing and negotiating the contracts. That will help the shops realize the power she has. And I assume you know that while the lawyers may not like it, each of these contracts can be differentiated based on history and scope and relationship. I got to tell you, the number of lawyers say, that's not the way we do contracts. I said, well, this is a completely different vendor. I can assure you that Coca-Cola's contract with the people who provided sugar are different than the people who provide them the tops that go on their plastic bottles. It's just different. 
a contract is not a contract. It is if you're a lawyer and want to make it super simple and have a lot of boilerplate, but not all relationships are alike and contracts are essentially a form of legal relationship. Second thing, shop your contracts. You mentioned in the question that shops have lied to you, okay? Shops that lie to you are a liability. Opposing counsel gets Laura on the stand, sorry, and asks, did you ever have reason to believe that shop knowingly lied to you saying work had been done but you had evidence it hadn't? Now remember guys, this is opposing counsel. If you knew they were lying, and this is the second question, okay ma'am, if you knew they were lying, why did you allow them to continue working on your trucks? Doesn't this make your company complicit in this terrible tragic accident and not the company who falsified the records? And the answer is, yeah, it kind of does. And look, maybe this is par for the course for the shops, but I'd suspect in every market, there's somebody who's honest and that honesty might be worth paying for. Or if it's not worth paying for, you ought to be able to monetize it and understand what the risk is monetarily in terms of future contract negotiations or legal liabilities for not having honesty. Further, contractualize what you want in the relationship. I've already given it away, but relationship behaviors can be contractualized. You're going to do it with Laura. And so can pictures of measurements. You can make them send you pictures and signatures electronically transmitted through an app or a cell phone photo verifying work. We did this. This picture says we checked that tire pressure. And of course, that indemnifies your firm. Maybe you choose to still work with a firm who boxed all this stuff, but you'll know what you have when you have it. And I'm assuming you guys know all the possible shops in a given locale. And look, maybe I've made some bad assumptions here. This is, again, one of those, I have a headache, do I need surgery questions. Uh, and I have, I have, if I had made bad assumptions, I'm happy to have them corrected and to answer this again. Question 20. Do you have recommendations for a high C, high D sales manager to better persuade a high I sales manager colleague to back up their ideas with metrics and data? Okay, this is a case where uh, a peer is a very talented salesperson, but doesn't suggest ideas in ways that are helpful to this person who's asking the question. His good ideas seldom have any data, and he gets angry when he's called out for not providing additional information. And oh, by the way, my high-ass boss enables this behavior because he's charmed by the high eye. <laughs> Look, if you're asking me whether you should talk to a peer about this, it would depend on the relationship. And you've used the word colleague, and that doesn't usually does mean a professional peer, but it can mean anyone, although it usually doesn't mean boss. People don't call their boss a colleague in a situation like this. The word colleague is technically a rule neutral title. I assume you don't have a good relationship with this peer and that you described him as talented, as a talented salesperson when in fact he's a manager, which is like calling me a good typist because I type my show notes. Uh, then you also said he was arrogant and angry when he was challenged. If you're telling me you don't like that your boss is swayed by this high eye, well, sorry. You're not going to get far there especially since your boss is IS, and he appears not to need what you want from your colleague. Okay, all that said, I'd do a couple of things. I'd prepare some solid recommendations, new ideas, and build a presentation that uses data as well as appeals to the more people side of thing. Hopefully, he'll catch on that your way is better.
you can set that example with or without a good relationship and hopefully your boss adopts them and your buddy comes to you and says, how do you get your bo- your ideas adopted? Okay. And if you do have a good relationship, why not get him to take the disc along with yourself and then show him how you're different and he's different and show him in advance. Run an idea by him before you give a presentation to the boss. And when he says, well, there's a lot of data there, say, explain why you do it. And then pay attention to the results he gets and the results you get. I suspect you'll both learn something. Okay, folks, now we get to the final section of the uh, licensee call, which are the yes-no questions, which were widely appreciated in the past, so we'll continue these. First one, I know previously you've cautioned against giving your spouse work advice. Would you give said advice if your spouse is technically asking you for it or specifically asking you for it? Yes, I would, but I'd caveat it by saying, I trust you and I will support whatever you do. And then I would only say that if I really would support whatever he or she did. And I'd also say, I don't think this is a good idea because I don't know enough about what it is you're doing. And whatever my spouse said, I wouldn't contradict. That's where a lot of these situations go wrong. Next question. Do you use an Oxford comma in your business writing? By the way, Oxford commas are often called, I think, repeated commas, serial commas. That's where the last item in a series actually has a comma after it. My answer is yes, generally. If you leave an Oxford comma off, it can confuse people in my experience. However, most of my writing is meant to be consumed verbally, and I like the idea of writing the way you talk, although it's way harder than people think. And so sometimes I don't, because I know that the pause the serial comma creates can feel pretentious when it's verbalized mentally or actually. And finally, I feel very comfortable writing, and I use many devices to enhance clarity or drama that vex grammarians. I really believe that style and individual voice has a place. I didn't intend this nine years ago, that my writing would be sty- would become stylistic, the basis for manager tools, guidance, but it has. Uh, I actually don't like writing. I hate writing. I really like finishing writing. Writing is like hitting your head on the self, hitting yourself on the head with a hammer. You really like it when it's done. And I feel like Horseman. I think it's 12th law. Know the rules and then break them in that order. I know what a serial comma is. I know that too many people put quotes around too many things and that IT apostrophe S is way more often used than it should. It doesn't show possession, folks. It's only a contraction. And so because I know all that stuff, when I break a rule, I know I'm breaking it, and I like the use in that particular situation. So if you want to go around and tell people, even Mark Horseman is a serial Oxford comma kind of guy, say, yeah, I generally hew to that one, but there are times when I don't. And by the way, commas in general, bad. Periods are better. Third question, when your children were toddlers, <laughs> I love this question, were you able to read books at the same blistering place, pace that you do now? By the way, I only recently found out that my pace is blistering. I always assumed I was a fast reader because I read a lot, but then I started questioning that and then discovered when I took a test that I read very fast. And the answer is yes, I have always been a fast reader. And, and look, guys, I don't mind being interrupted, okay? 
I fed and changed babies while reading John McDonald and Stephen King and Peter Drucker. So yes, I've always read. I, I don't watch as much TV as most people. I read all the time. I did, in fact, at one point read while I was driving. Um, proof that this is not driving tools. This is manager tools. But the issue with reading is not speed. Speed is not the issue. Time is the issue. If you want to read more, you don't have to speed up, although reading more will cause you to speed up, particularly if you're reading within a genre because you develop essentially what amount to reading hacks that'll make you more effective. Uh, the issue is making more time for reading. You want to read more? Just make more time. And I don't mean making more time in a literal sense because ain't nobody doing that, but I'm saying cut out the stuff that adds low value to your life. Next, will the effective interview series come out in 2014? Yes, which of course in our world means no. We are planning now in the middle of the year, and I know this, this licensee call is delayed and I apologize for it, I've been very busy. Uh, that said, we are planning for the Public Effective Interviewer Conference to start in 2014 as well. But since I've announced recently I'm cutting back on my travel, we don't know how we're going to do that yet, and we're balancing conflicting priorities. Next, is Google Glass inappropriate to wear in most workplaces? Um, I don't think so. It's not inappropriate, guys. But to be clear, I'm not an ethicist. I suspect Wendy would disagree with me about this. Don't please don't everybody send her emails. I think she would say it's it, it's it, no it's 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 appropriate. Um, in my mind, wearing them isn't the problem. Using the captured images and controlling them privately would be problematic, and it would absolutely be within the purview of a firm to say you can't do it. And the problem, of course, is. When you have them on, there's an assumption that you are using the full range of skills and abilities associated with them. Literally, the wearing of them, when technologies are new, we fear all the technology, not just the technology that ends up being used later. When technology is new, people tend to overreact until the zeitgeist takes hold and we understand what the actual risks and benefits are. The fact is, you have very few rights legal rights in an organization. So therefore, if somebody said, I have a right to wear these, the company could say, yeah, no, really, you don't. Uh, we, you for, you um, gave up those rights when you came to work here. Always remember, guys, it's not the technology, it's the user. Okay, That's the issue. The technology is not disruptive. It's how we use them, which is a human behavior that matters. If Mike wore Google Glasses to work, I wouldn't care if we were working in the same office. If my nemesis wore them, I wouldn't likely, wouldn't like it, but also, frankly, I probably wouldn't care very much either. And this is why, in my opinion, there are stupid policies for every little thing in organizations everywhere. They're always written for the, quote, one guy who, dot, 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 close quote. Dress codes, for instance, exist to help managers who don't know how to tell direct what they're wearing isn't professional enough. Well, that's dumb. Why should all of us have to have a dress code? Because one of us is an idiot. So you go into a public place, you give up notions of privacy. I'm not saying it's cool for the other guy to exploit what the benefit, but others people cool. Uh, the fact that other people are cool or not cool isn't a shield for us. 
Is it possible that everyone dislikes Google Glass and the guy with the glasses ends up burning relationships? Oh yeah, I can totally see that. But is it inappropriate? No. Look for HR to come out with policies. Bad sign, but it's coming. Do you plan to do a podcast series on how to improve analysis skills? We don't have any plans for analytical skill improvement casts, but I wouldn't rule it out. It's definitely not a never. Okay, There are reasons we would in the vein of decision-making and critical thinking. There's so much to cover that's bigger than that and broader than that, but it's on the list. I put it on the list because you asked, and I appreciate the question. Is Mark's book going to be on audio also when published? It depends on how you define when published, but yes, my book will be an audio book too at some point. Our first release is only on the Manager Tools website and it'll only be a digital book. It won't be an audio book. There's an old joke here about, I think Stephen Wright, the comedian, did it, says, hey, have you ever seen my seashell collection? I keep it scattered up and down the eastern coast of the United States. Guys, you don't need an audiobook of my book. Just listen to the cast on basics, one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, and delegation, and how to roll out the Trinity. That's the audiobook. Is there going to be an option to buy slash watch an actual conference for those who can't attend? Yes. The video version of our Effective Manager Conference in its entirety will be released sometime soon. We think the price is $450, I, th- I think, with a pretty good sweetener, we think, for licensees. And I think similarly for ECC, the Effective Communications Conference, this year or next year. Do you advise posting Teams disk results? Yes, we do. Okay, We actually have a podcast about how to roll out disk, and it addresses this very specifically. I did have a manager recently tell me uh, one of my people disagreed that said it was a violation of her privacy and she wouldn't do it. The manager agreed and allowed her not to. I vehemently disagree with that manager, but that's okay. He's a pretty good manager. There's not a privacy concern. When the company pays for somebody to take a desk, they don't have an expectation of privacy, folks. Uh, And as you might imagine, more communication is better. So, listen to the cast about uh, rolling out disk with your team. And folks, that's it. Sorry this cast is so delayed. Wendy and Danny helped this time, but the delay was not their fault. It was mine. And I look forward to getting another one of these off the ground much more quickly so we can get back up to four a year. I hope you're doing well. Stay in touch with us. Let us know what we can do and how we can do it. And it is a privilege to do this for you every week as we pass our nine-year anniversary. Until the next time, Mark Horseman, Manager Tools.